Good evening. I'm Rick Dancer. Welcome to Get Real with Rick Dancer. Oh, do we have a treat for you tonight? Um, we really do. I'm excited about this show because I was recently at a Dave Ramsey uh, leadership training in Nashville. And a lot of you guys know because I talked about that. And while we were there, this gentleman stood up and started talking a little bit about his story. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I have to get this guy on the show. And he was dressed exactly as you're going to see him in just a couple of seconds here. Um, but his name is Farmer Lee Jones. And we're going to talk about how you can transform your life. I think sometimes it's really easy, especially if you're a business person, to get really down or to look at your failures. And rather than looking at your failures or being the, the roadway and the journey to your success. I was watching a movie recently um, oh, about uh, Yogi Berra. And there's a quote in there and I loved it so much. And it really is him because there's a lot of fake Yogi Berra quotes out there, but this really was him. And he says, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And that is so much life because you don't know which one it is. But when you get there, once you take it, then, you know, so um, we have sponsors tonight, Chris Dental Family Dentistry, uh, New Leaf Hyperbarics and Wellness Center. And we're going to get to them in a little bit. But first, let's bring on Farmer Lee Jones. How you doing, man? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Oh, man, I am so excited to have you because I just thought, you know, there was thousands, 2,600 people there. I don't know how you ended up getting called on. I think it's partly because, you know, the way you were dressed in overalls and a, a red tie. But you you captivated me and uh, and my wife. We both smiled and went. So tell people kind of you, you have a place called the Chef's Garden. But how did this all start? desperation <laughs> that's how that's the name of entrepreneurship isn't it yeah for sure for sure so uh, you, you were, were a farmer in, yeah i am a, a vegetable farmer it's a family farm uh, we're in an amazing microclimate right along lake erie lake erie is the shallowest of all the great lakes consequently the warmest european settlers when they came here recognized it as an amazing growing area all along the ridge of lake erie and it provides a buffer to the cold and it extends our season in the fall. This area was huge in wine grapes before Napa Valley. Before uh, Oregon even. If, well, for sure before Oregon, yes. And uh, there were at one point 330 vegetable growers here. And it's pretty amazing. They had the market that we seek to look for today, which is a regional distribution. But as roads and refrigeration continue to improve, into the 40s and into the 50s, outside competition started coming. Roads and refrigeration got better. So you saw things from California, the Carolinas, Mexico, New Mexico, Georgia, uh, Florida, all along Virginia. And so outside competition started coming. And one by one, the small family farms, just like in a lot of cases, the small family owned grocery stores went by the wayside. They couldn't compete. And ultimately, you know, the economy of scale, and they did it more efficiently. But my dad went to work for a very progressive vegetable grower when he was 14, and Mr. Nichols recognized that competition coming and invested in things like hydrocooling, packaging, palletization, sizing, sorting, distribution, bought from about 65 other growers in the community and packed all under one label and supplied places like, if maybe some of the listeners remember, the old Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, A&P, Kroger, okay. Pick and Pay, uh, chain grocery stores by the truckloads. Uh, Mr. Nichols had no children that wanted to take the business over. 
My mom and dad bought the farm from him in the late 60s. And the 60 growers that Mr. Nichols had been working cooperatively with to be able to have enough volume had continued to demise or diminish down to about 12 to 15 growers. So my dad continued to expand his acreage and was farming about 1,200 acres of fresh market vegetables. Wow. And they had some successful years, uh, worked very hard, shipping every place east of the Mississippi River. Now, you and I are old enough to remember, but, uh, you know, we're all a little nervous about seeing the interest rates moving upward. Well, we've kind of enjoyed a 10, 15-year period here where they're virtually nothing. Yeah, we've been kind of vacant here, huh? Yeah, but um, that certainly helped with the housing boom and, you know, the over-asking prices that we've all experienced in the last few years, which is was always unheard of. Right. But, you know, we're seeing 45 5%, 5.5%. We're actually getting a little interest for money in the bank for the first time in a while. But interest rates in the late 70s, early 80s hit oh. 22%. Yeah. And my dad got wrapped up in that. He was paying 22% um, interest uh, to borrow money. He was borrowing borrowing operating capital in the winter and buying things like the seeds and the fertilizer and the containers and paying for labor until crops started coming in. And then as the crops would come in, by the end of the season, hopefully you had that loan paid back. And then you, whatever you had left, you poured back into the business. Right. And he did that in 1978. He had a bumper year. Every nickel went back in. And uh, of course, that was a time period. If some of the listeners can remember the famous quote from Earl Butts, get big or get out. And uh, he was the Secretary of Agriculture of the United States. And uh, we had a hailstorm, a very horrific hailstorm. It was just about uh, 1st of July. It was time for us to start harvesting product to start paying that loan back. And the hailstorm was so widespread, it took every crop. Wow. And uh, at 19 years old, I stood and watched 25 years of my parents' work be auctioned off one piece of equipment at a time, uh, right down to my every tractor, every piece of equipment, the farm, uh, my mother's car, uh, and our house. What was and, that like? What was that like for you, Lee? Well, if you can remember when you were in high school and you really thought you were in love with a girl in school and she told you that she wasn't interested in you anymore because she was going to go out with your best friend um kind of like getting your heart cut out while you're still standing there breathing right it was almost unconscionable for me to think that my parent my parents hadn't missed a day of church in 20 years and were non-smokers non-drinkers just work 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 and poured every nickel back into the business and there we were flat broke and uh, we moved down to the corner about a quarter of a mile down the road. And uh, a year later, that six acres that we had moved into um, went up for sheriff sale as well. And by the grace of God, it'll give you some idea of what kind of condition the old farmhouse was in. It sold at the sheriff sale on the courthouse steps for $56,000, six acres and a, and a farmhouse. Now it wasn't much, but if we didn't get it bought back on those courthouse steps that day, we were homeless. Um, by the grace of God, we got the farm back. The six acres, you know, we were able to stay there and live in the six acres. We begged a neighbor to rent us 50 acres. We told him if we made it through the year, we'd give them double the rent. And uh, we did without a lot of things, but they got double the rent. And we continue to rent from that family, uh, that 50 acres. But, you know, we've actually 
you know, continue to add acreage to our, our schedule over the last 40 years. So it's been, it's been quite a journey. But you, so, so let me do this. I'm going to run a couple of quick ads yeah. come back and I want to understand. So when did you start moving into this, this new thing where you got real specialized? So hang on just a second. Okay. Yeah. This guy's really good. Shannon is the best interest I've ever seen. He's, he was coming in on Fridays and now he's coming on Fridays and Monday, but everybody that leaves uh, with him, uh, I, he always has me come. He goes, come here. Cause I'll come in on Fridays. He was like, and they look absolutely beautiful. They, uh, the patients, there's hardly any redos. Like I, I wish, and I probably will advertise a lot just to get him some momentum, but he is so good. He, he's the best centrist I've ever met. Yeah. His, his outcomes. Cause you know, you make denture and they don't fit very well. They don't look very good. He's awesome. Not only does he, you know, take the impressions. He, um, yeah, there's a lot of art to taking impressions, but he's also, he also makes the dentures. Um, he, he's, a, he's fantastic. I love having him. He's made my life a lot easier cause I don't have to worry about dentures anymore. you know that light therapy could alleviate your pain? There's been over 60 years of study into light therapy. Blue light really works well with the skin. Red light penetrates down into the muscles to really help with muscle recovery from workouts. Infrared can go bone deep through the skull into the brain and can help promote blood flow, which can help with mental, mental clarity. It's new light pads. They're called the Deep Light Therapy Pads. They're infrared only. They're really good for targeting areas of the body to really get deep penetration into large muscles, down to the bones, work with muscle soreness and joint pain alleviation. All right, and welcome back to Farmer Lee Jones with the Chef's Garden and uh, uh, Farmer, Farmer Lee talked already about the family losing the farm and then they were managed to save six acres and a cruddy house. <laughs> and that's where you live. Then you started leasing out more land, doing more. When did this idea for the chef's garden turn up? What did you do? Okay. So what did you do before the chef's garden and then go into chef's garden? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we were really desperate for a way to be able to survive in agriculture at that point. And we did the only thing that we knew could possibly work. And you got to keep in mind, you know, my dad was post-depression. They never threw anything away. So at the sheriff's sale, there were some trucks. We had the used equipment area where you never threw anything away because you're always maybe needing a part. And so you left that equipment there and you could go and steal something off of it to build. So there were three trucks that didn't get a, a bid at the sheriff's sale. I can remember the auctioneer saying, somebody give me $50 for this thing. It's worth that for scrap metal. Nobody <laughs> would buy them. So we drug them down the road onto our six acres and we patched them up barely to go to farmer's markets. Now you got to keep in mind, farmer's markets in the early 80s were at a historic low. 
Yeah. Today, there are more farm markets than in the history of the United States, which is awesome. We love seeing that resurgence. But at that time, it was low. But we could put something in the ground and we could harvest it and we could take it to market and turn it into dollars. There wasn't a bank that would loan us a dime. We couldn't hire any any help. We would recruit church friends and any live bodies. We'd leave at 2.30 in the morning. We'd mud the plates over because they were all invalid. And we'd mud them over before we'd leave because the stickers were all you know, from a year or two years before. We mudded plates for five years. And uh, at the farmer's markets, we met a chef. I didn't know anything about the culinary world, and neither did my family. And it was this lady in a chef's jacket. And she said, you know, if you guys would grow for the quality of the product, grow for the integrity of the product rather than the tons per acre, I believe there'd be enough chefs that would support you. And we were so desperate to find a way to survive in agriculture. We grabbed around both of her ankles and we said, okay, teach us. <laughs> and, and she did. And she turned us on to a chef and then another chef and then another chef. And about five years into this, there were a handful of chefs coming to the farmer's markets. And they wanted everything different than what my dad was used to growing, where it was all for the tons per acre and growing where you were controlling the weeds and controlling the insects through chemical. And they wanted this without the chemical and they wanted it without the synthetic fertilizers and they wanted it to taste good. And so we really sought about going after that. So five years into doing farmer's markets, taking care of this handful of chefs that wanted everything different. My dad, we would sit down in the winter to kind of regroup and decide what we're going to do for the next year and how we were going to get it done. And uh, my dad said, we're jack of all, master of none. We're trying to take care of these pain in the behind chefs, and we're trying to grow for farmer's markets. we got to do one or the other. I'm now 24, 25, and I'm like, well, Dad, we've got some regular customers. 99% of our business is coming from the farmer's markets, and 1% is from the chefs, and they want everything different. If we're going to vote on it, my vote, and I voted first, I said, I'm voting for farmer's markets. We've, we're five years into reestablishing. We went all the way around the table. My mother voted. My brother and sister voted. We got to my dad, and he took a clenched fist, and he slammed it down on a cardboard table. He said, absolutely not. What these chefs are looking for is the direction this family needs to go, and it's the direction this country needs to go. And he says, my vote counts for five. Yours only counts for one. You've been <laughs> outvoted. Now you're going to get out there and find every chef you can find and find out what they want us to grow. And your brother and I are going to figure out the right way to grow it. This discussion is over. Now you got work to do. Now go get after it. <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion. And I went about going after chefs and we cash flowed out and we had to do $178,000 in sales to break even. And that was with none of us making any pay. And, uh, you know, in the first, in the, in the year before we were, I think at $27,000 of incidental business that chefs had come to the farmer's markets and done with us. And I'm like, dad, that's a huge increase. What, go get it done. And, and so, you know, we started meeting chefs and we started talking to them about what they were looking for. And chefs have really been our mentors. They've taken us under the wing and uh, you know, the symbiotic relationship of chef and farmer working together is so much more powerful than a farmer working by themselves or a chef. And so it was really listening to the needs of the customer and recognizing that, you know, and, and this is really important. A hundred years ago, the nutritional level in vegetables was 50 to 80% higher than it is today. And the flavor isn't there in the vegetables. I don't fault the farmers. The farmers are tasked with, in the model that exists, it's keep the cost as low as possible, 
produce as many tons per acre as you can, and possibly you might stay in business. And that's, that's allowing us to be able to create cheap food as it relates to our income. And I would hope your listeners would really grasp a hold of this. As it relates to our income, America produces food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income. Yet we have the highest health care in the world. Yeah. Isn't that just crazy? Crazy. I mean, that you, we live in this country where we, um, we know so much. And yet we are, you know, I have friends from overseas that come and they're just like, you guys, when you get off a plane, the first thing you notice is that people are not in good health. Yeah. in America. And you're going, so we're having vegetables that, no, and no wonder people don't, I mean, my wife is a, a vegetable machine, um, you know, but, but no wonder people don't like the taste of them because they don't have the taste of vegetables. Right. It's like, you're getting a quarter of the flavor of a carrot or um, what, what are the things you guys sell the most of? Are you like into the, some of the, my wife's dad 30 years ago was growing kale, kohlrabi, all the things that are now like shishi vegetables that he was growing in the back garden. And they go, you want some kohlrabi? And I said, well, I don't even know what the hell that is. <laughs> you know? And then, oh, when you start, then when you see what it looks like, it's like, I don't know if I want to eat that or not. You know, <laughs> I don't know what that is. You and do now, want to eat it. You do oh my gosh. It. But so is that, what kind of vegetables are you guys, how's that changed? Did it used to be corn, carrots and that kind of stuff? And now you're what? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you have to recognize that we targeted the top end of the market. Because the reality was, was that, and still is, is that people will pay more for entertainment than they will for food. And if you have enough money, you'll pay more for entertainment than you will for food. So we had to target the top into the market because my dad's model was high volume, low margin. We were going to the complete other end of the spectrum, yeah. low volume or no volume and higher margin. Um, oh, can I get that from you? So what the thing that started us Chef Iris, who I met at the farmer's market, was looking for all things a zucchini the size of your pinky with a blossom attached. My dad had grown traditional zucchini in 20-pound cartons by the truckloads, and he was an expert zucchini grower. Yet, you know, here was this lady in a chef jacket telling us we wanted she wanted us to pick a three-inch zucchini. Mike came back and told my dad, and, you know, at first round, he was like, this lady's nuts. And I said, no, <laughs> no, dad, she's serious. And... Uh, you know, and then it turned into petite lettuces that are three inches. Let it, it was things that were unique in size, shape, texture, color. And really, so folks like Thomas Keller uh, were a huge supporter of the farm early on. And Charlie Trotter and Danielle Ballou, the Ritz-Carlton's, the Four Seasons, um, Laguna Niguel out there in California, Ritz-Naples, uh, Ritz-Amelia, Ritz-Atlanta, Ritz-Bughead. And, you know, if we had more time, we could go in. There's a pretty amazing story about how the Ritz-Carlton movement got started with us. But so it's really been focused on that top end. Since COVID, we've launched a nationwide home delivery because the restaurants we've been working with for 40 years were basically, we 40% of our revenue went away literally overnight Wow! because the restaurants closed. And we have 187 full-time people working on the farm. And we were determined, you don't furlough a farm and you don't furlough your family and our team is our family and so huh. we worked very hard to keep our team together and we did anything we could to establish a base hit but one of the things we did was launch a nationwide home delivery basically in about a 48-hour period 
and you pivoted really fast because you had to. We had to. We had to. It was it was really it was just as important then as it was back in the 80s when we lost the farm and we're starting over. So, you know, I think that change so, is difficult for a lot of us. But when you're forced to and desperation, you you either evolve or die. So without getting overly personal, but how big a business are you taught? You're, you're, you guys are running. I mean, you went from a little family farm to you are. Well, we still the, like to consider ourselves a little family farm in this, in the big perspective, we only farm 400 acres and we're surrounded by farms that are farming 3000, 4000, 5000 acres. And you get out West. Some of those are 10,000, 15, 20,000 acres. So we're still, we still consider ourselves a small family farm. Um, and, and we're okay with that. We, we're, our goal is never to be big or to be huge. It's just to be try and produce the healthiest, most flavorful, sexiest vegetables humanly possible for chefs and now for individuals that want to get great, great food at home. So what's your sexiest vegetable? I mean, really, if you were to pick, I mean, I know, I guess sexy on a vegetable is going to be, you know, up to the, 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 the person. But for you, what is what's the sexiest vegetable you grow? Well, you know, I mean, that's it. That is just like a person. I mean, what's sexy to one person is not sexy to another. Um, but I think that one of our sexiest vegetables is, OK, I'm going to say cucumber. You automatically get a picture in your mind of something that's six to eight inches long, two and a half, three inches around. It's got the wax on it and they're, you know. 99 cents in the store or a dollar 69 or something like that. Right. Well, Here's most of those are coming out of Mexico where the labor is being paid $2 and 50 cents a day and we can't compete quite frankly. So I want you to close your eyes and imagine I'm there. A, a cucumber that is half the diameter of a number two pencil and one inch long with a bright yellow blossom attached to the end, the size of a 50 cent piece. Can you imagine that floating in a cocktail? Can you imagine that on a salad? Can you imagine that, you know, floating in a chilled soup? I mean, they're really sexy. <laughs> so and, what, what, what have you learned about the creativity of the human being? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that at every single stage of the plant's life, it offers something unique to the plate. I had Chef Andrew Carmelini who has gone on now and has 12 or 15 restaurants of his own. He worked for Danielle Ballou in New York City. He was visiting. We encourage visiting chefs. We build a facility called the Culinary Vegetable Institute 23 years ago, where the most forward-thinking chefs in the world could come. They could stay. They could do R&D or R&R. They could do menu development. So Andrew and I were on our knees looking at the Herco Vert, which is a fancy way to call it a French bean. It's a long filet bean. And he's looking at him and he says, you know, I'm going to ask a stupid question. Now, I didn't think it was stupid at all. He says, you know, and of course, the Hercoverit tends to be six, seven inches long and about the diameter of a number two pencil. And he says, could I get them this size instead of this size? And he was holding his thumb and his index finger up and saying about two and a half inches. And of course, they were about the thickness of a pencil lead. And I said, absolutely, we could, but I don't know what we would call him. And he said, well, we're going to call him the Carmelini bean. Of course, uh, his name is Andrew Carmelini. And so we trademarked it as the Carmelini bean. 
and it takes three men an hour to pick a pound. So it's obviously not something that you put on a plate with tongs. Right. Um, you know, it's to accentuate. You may make a bean soup, but you might float three of those on the top. Now, so, our so whole world isn't around this at this point. We've evolved into products that are bigger and more traditional and normal size, but focusing on flavor and nutrient, nutrient density to them. So how do you make that bean smaller like that? Is it just through, through breeding and, and picking sooner? I mean, what do you, how, how do you do that? Well, we don't believe in any GMO. So it's nothing voodoo. It's a, one, it's varietal selection, but two, it's picking them young. And so we harvest that at a very young stage. So we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different things that are really cool on a plate. But the three most important things that chefs told us from the beginning were flavors, most important flavor, second, most important flavor is third, most important. Wow. And we had a hypothesis and really it was my father that he had a suspicion that as we were working to grow for flavor naturally, not chemically, not synthetically, not genetic modification, that we were probably moving the nutritional levels with it. And so we build a lab, a research and development lab on the farm. And we have three scientists on staff. Uh, we have a doctor that we hired from the Mayo Clinic and moved her and her family to the farm. And she lit, works here full time. And we're really focused on moving the nutrient, nutrient density, nitrate oxide levels up. Um, again, I'll reiterate, from 1920 to 2020, a 50 to 80% decline in the nutritional level in vegetables during the same time period, 100 years, a 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, diabetes. My bet, and I wouldn't bet the farm, but I bet you a drink, there isn't anybody that's listening to this that doesn't have somebody in their immediate circle of friends or family that doesn't suffer from one, one or more of those diseases. It's not sustainable. Right. You know, to... to and to, to think that it's not has something that doesn't have anything to do with our food chain is absolutely ridiculous because there's a direct correlation. Yep. Yep. And, and it ma so it matters what we eat, the quality of what we eat. And when you're going to the supermarket, you're, you're getting what everybody else is getting. Well, see, Rick, here's where we take it a step further. You are what you eat, but you are what the plant eats. And that's, what's really cool. The, the chemical companies, the pharmaceutical companies, who's that's making, they're, they're the ones making the money. So they go to the universities because the universities are financially strapped. They say, hey, we want to give you a grant for $10 million to do research to help the farmers. And by the way, the research needs to include our chemicals. So they use a chemical to kill the weeds, but they genetically modify the plant so that the chemical doesn't kill the genetically modified right. plant. They tell us that when it hits the ground, it dissipates. It wasn't true. It was a it was a bold faced lie. It kills the biology of the soil. Then when they put the synthetic fertilizers on, the biology is not there to break the, the uh, fertilizer down into a form that the plant can pick it up. Nutritional levels go down because the plant can't break the food down into a form that it can digest. And the, then the synthetic fertilizers run off into the creeks and into the rivers and the lakes. And guess what? Lake Erie is full of algal bloom. In the western basin where it's the shallowest it's the worst we've even had to shut the water off at times during the summer because the algal bloom is so bad because the fertilizer is feeding the algal bloom the biology is alive in a lake so it's breaking that food down into a form right. that it could grow so it's really exciting you have said it maybe 
you've heard it said for sure, oh, I need some vitamin D. I'm going to go get some sunshine, right? Yep. We've all yep. heard it. Maybe didn't fully understand what it meant, but it seemed like it was good. We can get our minds around the fact that our body is a receptacle for vitamin D through the sun. Here's what's really cool, Rick. Okay, we're doing lab analysis on the soil, just like if you go and have blood work drawn at the hospital. Every one of us as an adult has gone at some point and had blood work. Right. And what does that do? It gives you a mineral printout, high in iron, low in iron, high in calcium, low in calcium, all the way down, tells you where you're out of imbalance. What's really cool is different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So it could be clover, alfalfa, buckwheat, rye, mint, sedan grass. We have a 15 species planting out of the 400 acres, 200 acres of it in any one year is committed to harvesting the sun's energy. And if huh. the trick is about getting that balance, then what's really exciting is we used to, even you got the 200 acres, it's an unprecedented commitment to harvesting the sun's energy. The rows of the other 200 acres where we're growing crops, in between, we used to think needed to be weed-free and clean. In fact, we even used chemicals to have it weed-free and clean. Now we're planting cover crops in between the rows of the spinach, of the tomatoes, of the Brussels sprouts, of whatever we're growing. It's harvesting that energy. It feeds down through the roots. The roots of the product that you're going to grow to consume is picking that back up. We're seeing numbers in some cases as high as 150 to 300 times higher than the USDA average. Now, the USDA average is too low. But this is just going off the charts, and it's really exciting. It's not all doom and gloom. We can change this. It's and exciting it, stuff. You know, you know, I was listening to Rogan this morning. He was talking with the, uh, with uh, somebody about nuclear power, but it came up in the conversation, the regenerative farming. Yes. And, and we've got people in, in Montana and Oregon doing the same thing where, you know, you're bringing animals in to poop and naturally fertilize. Um, I have a, a friend who owns a winery. They bring goats in and they they nibble the leaves up. So they're doing the pruning so that you don't have to hire people to do the pruning. They're pooping. That, that helps with the things. And they take them out at a certain time. But you're giving weeds a purpose. So weeds, what we always consider, I said to my wife the other day, why is a dandelion considered a weed? It's got a beautiful flower on it. You can eat it. And why is it considered a weed? And she goes, I don't know. She goes, why do you ask things like that? Because I think there's everything has a use. And we've been so used to just like what you were talking about, you know, kill the weeds so the plants will grow better. Well, that, well, that doesn't work. It's not how, how nature planned it. And you guys are getting to do that. And we're taking it to a little bit more scientific level of finding out what the deficiencies are in the soil, what mineral levels are low. But what's really cool is that different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So it's a very controlled rather right. than just a random patch of weeds that are harvesting the energy. Weeds will do that, but we would rather put in specifically clover or alfalfa or buckwheat where we can, if we don't put those in, the weeds will come if you're not using the chemical. So it's really kind of a scientific approach to regenerative agriculture. If your listeners get a chance, please watch a documentary called Kiss the Ground. Kiss it's, the Ground. Kiss the Ground. It predicts 60 harvests left if we don't change our ways. Their next version of Kiss the Ground just came out called Common Ground. Um, we need to get our minds around this and get it. It goes, Kiss the Ground goes all the way back to the Dust Bowl and talking about how we were mismanaging agricultural land and losing it to wind erosion and the depleting the minerals. And so 
again, I don't want to try and come across as doom and gloom, but we do need to sit up and pay attention and we need to react. Well, I think, I don't think you're doom and gloom at all. No, I think what no. you're bringing up is like hope because yeah. it's like, and taking us back to not how it used to be done, but, but how, you know, maybe how God intended it to be done. We you say know? that all the time. God had a plan that's way better than anything that we could screw up with human. So uh, what have you, what, how, how old are you? I'm 62 as of last Friday. I'm 64 on fr Thursday. So oh, well, we're, we're not saying you too, my friend. So Farmer Lee, what would your 62 year old self go back and say to your 19 year old self when everything was gone? What would you say today? Uh, you know, I, nobody's ever going to accuse me of being the smartest guy in the room. Um, but they might say there's the most passionate man I've ever met and find your passion in life. Don't worry about the money. We worked for years without making a dime, but we followed our passion. We followed our heart. We believed that God had a different plan for us. Some of us, it takes a bigger two by four than others. And he redirected us. And, uh, you know, I, I think that in many ways, it is kind of like going back. If you look at the books from 100 years ago, it was pre-chemical, pre-synthetic fertilizer. And the nutritional levels were 50 to 80% higher 100 years ago than they are today. With all the brilliance that we have in this world, with all the technology, with all the know-how, and yet our nutritional levels are continuing to go down. Uh, it's very exciting. I got to work with my father for 40 years every day at church on Sunday, and I wouldn't have traded it for anything in the world. Now, how long ago did he pass? August 4th, 2020. So he saw all of this. He did. He did. Yeah. So it, it, did he think of himself as kind of a trend? I, you know, he was a, a, he really set a trend. And and I, I think is, you know, it, it is interesting because greed it, it really does. You get more food, but are you really getting what you need? And sometimes I think if less is, you know, you always hear that less is more and, and you guys are proving it. But what's so funny is less also brings you more when you're creating small, you know, the big stuff's supposed to be the best Well, you're creating big and little stuff. You're creating what people need and they'll pay for that. And it's, it's a value, but it has to feel really good when you leave because you're, you're changing a generation's idea about how to eat. I think that the young generation gets it more so than folks that are my age. Um, and it's not anything I personally am doing. My brother is actively involved. We're business partners at this point. It's a family business. We have eight siblings. Uh, I have nieces and nephews, and my brother has son and daughter involved. But beyond that, um, we have 187 full-time people that are really part of the family. Uh, we have profit sharing. If we make money, we share it. If we don't, we tell them why, and we talk about it, and we try and get better. Uh, my dad always had a saying that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the growers were 100 years ago. But he also says you can be on the right set of tracks and still get run over if you're not moving fast enough. Complacence is the beginning of the end. You know, he was just always just drive, 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 charge. You got to keep going. Don't take money out. You got to keep pouring it back into the business to build it. I mean, it's just 
we we've been at this and we love what we do it's not about the money um you can if somebody wants to to get product shipped at home or if you have an aunt matilda in tampa and she has three of everything but you know you need to get her a gift what the hell do you get her get her a subscription to a box of vegetables that says you care about her health and well-being uh, farmerjonesfarm.com and you can order a box online uh, i just cured, had a chef that uh Aaron Bluedorn from Texas. Uh, we have so many great chef friends all over the country, and he curated a recipe and looked at the ingredients we had available and put together a really great recipe that chefs can go on, or anybody can go online and try his recipes. So it's, it's fun stuff. So last thing for you, what do you believe about God? I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that um, he's a compassionate uh, God, but that uh, he has demands. And I, I think that even if you're not a God-fearing person, even if you believe something else, if you look at the Bible and you look at what it asks you to do, treat others as it would have you to treat yourself, um, go and sin no more. If you just look at the basic fundamentals of it, how, how can you argue with what he asks us to do? It's just... Right for the most part, pretty uh, fundamental doing good by people. Do you think that he smiles at you because he says to feed my sheep and <laughs> you are, you are feeding people um, maybe not what they think they need, but what they really truly need nutritionally. Um, I never really thought about that. Um, we also believe in pride cometh before fall. We're humble stewards of the land and we feel grateful to have the privilege to be able to farm it it's not ours somebody that was here before us it was theirs and it's going to be somebody else's um we don't really get too carried away about look what we did or is god proud of us um there's always room for improvement uh, none of us can do enough to go to heaven it's by his grace that allows us that so um i I don't know. I don't you're know. You're a cool, you're a you're a really cool guy. Oh, gee, thanks. No, I think you and you really are passionate and you know, you you um you're like what Santa should be. <laughs> you know what I mean? My I have I a son and I have a son who kind of has your eyes. And they always yeah. people always tell him you have Santa eyes and they really are. You do. Farmer Lee has Santa eyes and those are kind generous eyes and I really appreciate talking to you today. And you made me think about food differently. I mean, my wife is like, just, it's like she buys so carefully and, you know, people go, how do you guys stay so in shape? And it's like, because if, if we have pizza, she put the stuff on there and we know where it came from. Oh, homemade pizza yeah. with arugula and all of the vegetables oh. on there. Oh. Nothing better. Whole wheat no. yeah. So again, tell people again, how do they get a hold of you to get what we need? We are, the farm name is the Chef's Garden. The home delivery is Farmer Jones Farm, all one word, dot com. You can go online and you can curate your own box. Uh, it's not just micro cucumbers, all kinds of normal sized vegetables, but grown the right way. FarmerJonesFarm.com. But get out to the farmer's markets, pay attention to where you're spending your dollars and go to those farmer's markets and buy direct from a producer. Okay. Farmer Lee Jones, The Chef's Garden, Ohio, 
It is so nice to talk with you, and I appreciate you taking the time to share with us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. You're welcome. I'll talk to you later. We'll see you. Yep. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. Again, so he gave you all the information you need, folks, if you want to do it. But yeah, how encouraging is that? Think about what you put in your body. You know, I mean, we have to. And we wonder why cancer rates are so high. When I had cancer, that first thing I started doing is going, okay, something I put in my body, something in the environment and something genetically in my body, they're not mixing well. And I started, and I was not like, I don't eat, I haven't eaten fast food in 30 years. So it wasn't that, but I modified some of the things I put in my body and been cancer free for 13 years. So people ask me when the, you know, the dark time was here, why aren't you getting the vax? <laughs> Cause I don't know what it, my doctor said, don't put anything foreign in your body. So I'm putting nothing foreign in my body. I don't, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm a keep Rick Dancer alive a little bit longer kind of guy. So anyway, um, so share this on your page, let other people see it. And right here in Townsend, Montana, we have a farmer's market on Thursdays, find the farmer's market. And then you're not only supporting your person. I know you're going to go up and go, oh, it costs more money. Well, that's because they grew it themselves and it's from your neighborhood. And it didn't, it has the nutrients. You're paying for the nutrients in that delicious thing and the flavor that you get from it. So share it on your page um, and uh, have a great weekend because this is going to air on Thursday. So have a great weekend. We're taking 4th of July off. We'll be back next week with more stuff after the 4th. All right. See you later. Good night.